Section 7 of The Purple Cloud. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham McMillan. The Purple Cloud by Matthew Phipps Scheel. Section 7. Well, I saw at last what whalers used to call the blink of the ice, that is to say, its bright apparition or reflection in the sky when it is left behind, or not yet come to. By this time I was in a region where many good craft of various sorts were to be seen. I was continually meeting them, and not one did I admit to investigate, while many I boarded in the kayak or the larchwood pram. Just below seventy degrees I came upon a good large fleet of what I supposed to be Lafaden cod and herring fishers, which must have drifted somewhat on, on a northward current. They had had a great season, for the boats were well laden with curing fish. I went from one to the other on a zigzag course, they being widely scattered, some mere dots to the glass on the horizon. The evening was still and clear with that astral arctic clearness, the sun just beginning its low-couched nightly drowse. These sturdy-looking brown boats stood rocking gently there with slow-creaking noises, as of things whining in slumber, without the least damage, awaiting the appalling storms of the winter months on that tenebrous sea, when a dark doom and a deep grave would not fail them. The fishers were brock hulls, wearing, many of them, fringes of beard well back from the chin-point, with hanging woolen caps. In every case I found below decks a number of cruises of corn brandy, marked aquavit, two of which I took into the pram. In one of the smacks an elderly fisher was kneeling in a forward sprawling pose, clasping the lug-mast with his arms, the two knees wide apart, head thrown back, and the yellow eyeballs with their islands of grey iris staring straight up the mast-pole. At another of them, instead of boarding in the pram, I shut off the boreal's liquid air, at such a point that, by delicately steering, she slackened down to a stoppage just a beam of the smack upon whose deck I was thus able to jump down. After looking around I descended the three steps aft into the dark and garrety below decks, and with stooping back went calling in an awful whisper. Anyone? Anyone? Nothing answered me, and when I went up again the boreal had drifted three yards beyond my reach. There being a dead calm, I had to plunge into the water, and in that half-minute there a sudden cold throng of unaccountable terrors beset me and I can feel again now that abysmal, abysmal desolation of loneliness and a sense of a hostile and malign universe bent upon eating me up, for the ocean seemed to me nothing but a great ghost. Two mornings later I came upon another school, rather larger boats these, which I found to be Brittany codfishers. Most of these, too, I boarded. In every below decks was a wooden or earthenware image of the Virgin, painted in gaudy, faded colors and in one case I found a boy who had been kneeling before the statue, but was toppled sideways now, his knees still bent, and the cross of Christ in his hand. These stalwart blue woolen blouses and tarpaulin sou'westers lay in every pose of death, every detail of feature and expression still perfectly preserved. The sloops were all the same. All, all, with sing-song creaks they rocked a little, nonchalantly, each, as it were, with a certain subconsciousness of its own personality and callous unconsciousness of all the others round it, yet each a copy of the others. The same hooks and lines, disemboweling knives, barrels of salt and pickle, piles and casks of opened cod, kegs of biscuit, and low creaking rockings, and a bilgy smell, and dead men. The next day, about eighty miles south of the latitude of Mount Hecla, I sighted a big ship, which turned out to be the French cruiser Lazare Treport. I boarded and overhauled her during three hours, her upper, main, and armored deck, deck by deck, to her lowest black depths, even childishly spying up the tubes of her two big, rusted turret-guns. 
Three men in the engine room had been much mangled, after death, I presume, by a burst boiler. Floating about eight hundred yards to the northeast lay a longboat of hers, low in the water, crammed with marines, one oar still there, jammed between the rowlock and the rower's forced-back chin. On the ship's starboard deck, in the long stretch of space between the two masts, the blue jackets had evidently been piped up, for they lay there in a sort of serried disorder, to the number of two hundred and seventy-five. Nothing could be of suggestion more tragic than the wasted and helpless power of this poor, wandering vessel, around whose stolid mass myriads of wavelets, busy as aspen leaves, bickered with a continual weltering splash that was quite loud to hear. I sat a good time that afternoon in one of her steely port-main-deck casemates on a gun-carriage, my head sunken on my breast, furtively eyeing the bluish, turned-up feet, all shrunk, of a sailor who lay on his back before me. His soles were all that I could see, the rest of him lying head downwards beyond the steel dorsal. Drenched in seas of lugubrious reverie, I sat, till, with a shuddering start, I awoke, paddled back to the Boreal, and, till sleep con conquered me, went on my way. At ten the next morning, coming on deck, I spied to the west a group of craft, and turned my course upon them. They turned out to be eight Shetland Sixerns, which must have drifted northeastward hither. I examined them well, but they were as the long list of the others, for all the men, and all the boys, and all the dogs on them were dead. I could have come to land a long time before I did, but I would not. I was so afraid. For I was used to the silence of the ice, and I was used to the silence of the sea. But God knows it. I was afraid of the silence of the land. Once, on the 15th July, I had seen a whale, or thought I did, spouting very remotely afar on the southeast horizon, and on the 19th I distinctly saw a shoal of porpoises vaulting the sea surface, in their swift successive manner northward, and seeing them I had said pitifully to myself, Well, I'm not quite alone in the world. Then, my good God, not quite alone. Moreover, some days later, the Boreal had found herself in a bank of cod making away northward, millions of fish, for I saw them, and one afternoon caught three, hand-running, with the hook. So the sea, at least, had its tribes to be my mates. But if I should find the land as still as the sea, without even the spouting whale or school of tumbling sea-hogs, if Paris were dumber than the eternal ice, what then, I asked myself, should I do? I could have made short work and landed at Shetland, for I found myself as far westward as a longitude eleven degrees twenty-three minutes west, but I would not. I was so afraid. The shrinking within me to face that vague suspicion which I had turned me first to a foreign land. I made for Norway, and on the first night of this definite intention, at about nine o'clock, the weather being gusty, the sky lowering, the air sombrous, and the sea hard-looking, dark and ridged, I was steaming along at a good rate, holding the wheel, my poor port and starboard lights still burning there, when, without the least notice, I received the roughest physical shock of my life, being shot bodily right over the wheel, thence as from a cannon, twenty feet to the cabin door, though it head foremost down the companionway, and still beyond some six yards along the passage. I had crashed into some dark and dead ship, probably of large size, though I never saw her, nor any sign of her, and all that night, and the next day till four in the afternoon, the Boreal went driving alone over the sea whither she would, for I lay unconscious. When I woke, I found that I had received really very small injuries, considering, but I still sat there on the floor a long time, in a sulky, morose, disgusted, and bitter mood, 
and when I rose, pettishly stopped the ship's engines, seeing my twelve dead all huddled and disfigured. Now I was afraid to steam by night, and even in the daytime I would not go on for three days, for I was childishly ang angry with what I did not know, and inclined to quarrel with those whom I could not see. However, on the fourth day, a rough swell which knocked the ship about, and made me very uncomfortable, coaxed me into moving, and I did so with bows turned eastward and southward. I sighted the Norway coast four days later, in latitude sixty-three degrees, nineteen minutes, at noon of the eleventh of August, and pricked off my course to follow it, but it was with a slow and dawdling reluctance that I went, at much less than half speed. In some eight hours, as I knew from the chart, I ought to sight the lighthouse, light on Smalen Island, and when quiet night came, the black water being branded with trails of still moonlight, I passed quite close to it, between ten and twelve, almost under the shadow of the mighty hills. But, oh my God, no light was there, and all the way down I marked the rugged seaboard slumber darkly, afar or anear, with never, alas, one friendly light. Well, on the 15th of August I had another of those maniac raptures, whose passing away would have left an elephant racked and prostrate. During four days I had seen not one sign of present life on the Norway coast, only hills, hills, dead and dark, and floating craft, all dead and dark, and my eyes now, I found, had acquired a crazy fixity of stare into the very bottom of the vacant abyss of nothingness, while I remained unconscious of being, save of one point, rainbow blue, far down in the infinite, which passed slowly from left to right before my consciousness a little way, then vanished, came back again, and passed slowly again, from left to right, continually, till some prick or voice in my brain would startle me into the consciousness that I was staring, whispering the profound, confidential warning, You must not stare so, or it is over with you. While lost in the blank trance of this sort, I was leaning over the wheel during the afternoon of the 15th, when it was as if some in instinct or premonition in my soul leapt up and said aloud, If you look just yonder, you will see. I started, and in one instant had surged up from all that depth of reverie to reality. I glanced to the right, and there, at last, my God, I saw something. Human, which moved rapidly, moved at last, and it came to me. That sense of recovery, of waking, of new solidity, of the comfortable usual, a millionfold too intense for words. How sweetly consoling it was. Again now, as I write, I can fancy and feel it. The rock solidity, the adamant ordinary, on which to base the feet and live. From the day when I stood at the pole, and saw there the dizzy thing that made me swoon, there had come into my way not one sign or trace that other beings like myself were alive on the earth with me. Till now, suddenly, I had the sweet, indubitable proof for on the southwestern sea, not four knots away, I saw a large, swift ship, and her bows, which were sharp as a hatchet, were steadily chipping through the smooth sea at a pretty high pace, throwing out profuse ribbony foams that went widely, with outward undulations, far beyond her length, as she ran the sea in haste, straight northward. At the moment, I was steering about southeast by south, fifteen miles out from a shadowy blue series of Norway mountains, and just giving the wheel one frantic spin to starboard to bring me down upon her, I flew to the bridge, leant my back on the mainmast, which passed through it, put a foot on the white iron rail before me, and there at once felt all the mocking devils of distracted revelry possess me, 
as I caught the cap from my long hairs, and commenced to wave and wave and wave, red-faced maniac that I was, for at the second nearer glance I saw that she was flying an ensign at the main, and a long pennant at the main top, and I did not know what she was flying those flags there for, and I was embittered and driven mad. With distinct minuteness did she print herself upon my consciousness in that five minutes interval. She was painted a dull and cholera yellow, like many Russian ships, and there was a faded pink space at her bows under the line where the yellow ceased. The ensign at her main I made out to be the blue and white saltire, and she was clearly a Russian passenger liner, two-masted, two-funneled, though from her funnels came no trace of smoke, and the position of her steam cones was anywhere. All about her course the sea was spotted with wobbling splendors of the low sun, large, coarse blots of glory near the eye, but lessening to a smaller pattern in the distance, and at the horizon refined to a homogeneous band of livid silver. The double speed of the Boreal and the other, hastening opposite ways, must have been thirty-eight or forty knots, and the meeting was accomplished in certainly less than five minutes. Yet into that time I crowded years of life. I was shouting passionately at her, my eyes starting from my head, my face all inflamed with rage, the most prone, loud, and urgent. For she did not stop, nor signal, nor make sign of seeing me, but came furrowing down upon me, like juggernaut, with steadfast speed. I lost reason, thought, memory, purpose, sense of relation, in that access of delirium which transported me, and can only remember now that in the midst of my shouting, a word, uttered by the fiends who used my throat to express their frenzy, set me laughing high and madly, for I was crying, Hi! Bravo! Why don't you stop? Madmen! I have been to the pole! That instant an odor arose, and came, and struck upon my brain, most detestable, most execrable, and while one might count ten, I was aware of her near-sounding engines, and in that cursed charnel went tearing past me on her maned way, not fifteen yards from my eyes and nostrils. She was a thing, my God, from which the vulture and the jackal, prowling for offal, would fly with shrieks of loathing. I had a glimpse of decks, piled thick, with her festered dead. In big black letters, on the round retreating yellow stern, my eye-corner caught the word Yaroslav, as I bent over the rail to retch and cough and vomit at her. She was a horrid thing. This ship had certainly been pretty far south, in tropical or subtropical latitudes, with her great crowd of dead, for all the bodies which I had seen till then, so far from smelling ill, seemed to give out a certain perfume of the peach. She was evidently one of those many ships of late years which have substituted liquid air for steam, yet retained their old steam funnels, in case of emergency for air, I believe, was still looked at askance by several builders, on account of the terrible accidents which it sometimes caused. The Boreal herself is a similar instance of both motors. This vessel, the Yaroslav, must have been left with working engines when her crew were overtaken by death, and her air tanks, being still unexhausted, must have been ranging the ocean with impunity ever since, during I know not how many months, or it might be, years." Well, I coasted Norway for nearly a hundred and sixty miles without once going nearer land than two or three miles, for something held me back. But passing the fjord mouth where I knew the Adheim was, I suddenly turned the helm to port, almost before I knew that I was doing it, and I made for land. In half an hour I was moving up an opening in the land with mountains on either hand, streaky crags at their summit, umbrageous boscage below, 
and the whole softened as it were by veils woven of the rainbow this arm of water lies curved about like a thread which one drops only the curves are much more pointed so that every few minutes the scene was changed though the vessel just crawled her way up and i could see behind me nothing of what was past or only a landlocked gleam like a lake i never saw water so polished and glassy like clarid polished marble reflecting everything quite clean-cut in its lucid abysm over which hardly the faintest zephyr breathed that still sundown it wimpled about the bluff boreal which seemed to move as if careful not to bruise it in rich wrinkles and creases like glycerine or dewy trickling lotus oil yet it was only the sea and the spectacle yonder was only crags and autumn foliage and mountain slope yet all seemed caught up and chased wrapped in a trance of rose and purple and made of the stuff of dreams and bubbles of pollen of flowers and rinds of the peach i saw it not only with delight but with complete astonishment having forgotten as was too natural in all that long barrenness of ice and sea that anything could be so ethereally fair yet homely too human familiar and consoling the air here was richly spiced with that peachy scent and there was a sabbath and a charm in that place at that hour as it were of those gardens of hesperus and reserved for the spirits of the just alas but i had the glass at my side and for me paradise was mixed with a despair immense as the vault of heaven my good god for anon i would take it up to spy some perched hut of the peasant or burg of the bonder on the peaks and i saw no one there and to the left at the third marked bend of the fjord where there is one of those watch-towers that these people used for watching incoming fish i spied lying on a craggy slope just before the tower a body which looked as if it must surely tumble headlong but did not and when i saw that i felt definitely for the first time that shoreless despair which i alone of men have felt high beyond the stars and deep as hell and i felt a staring again that blank stare of nirvana and the lunacy of nothingness wherein time merges in eternity and all being like one drop of water flies scattered to fill the bottomless void of space and is lost the boreal's bow walking over a little empty fishing boat roused me and a minute later just before i came to a new promontory and bend i saw two people the shore there is some three feet above the water and edged with boulders of rock about which grows a fringe of shrubs and small trees behind this fringe is a path curving upward through a sombre wooded little gorge and on the path near the water i saw a driver of one of those norwegian sulkies that were called cajolers he on the high front seat was dead lying sideways and backwards with low head resting on the wheel and on a trunk strapped to a frame on the axle behind was a boy his head too resting sideways on the wheel near the others and the little pony was dead pitched forward on its head and four knees tilting the shafts downward and some distance from them on the water floated an empty skiff end of section seven recording by graham mcmillan san diego california